All right. Hey, um, we're going to take a look at a brand new series. So why don't you guys open your Bibles, if you would, real quick to the book of Genesis chapter 1. Um, we'll get to that in a second. And then secondly, open up to the book of Romans chapter 8. If you guys don't have Bibles, raise your hand. We have some ushers that would love to get you guys Bibles. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to keep this Bible. It's our gift to you guys. We want you all to have a Bible. Um, we'll also have it up on the screen as well. So as uh, was mentioned, we're going to be starting a brand new series. Uh, we have been, basically as a church, since day one when we started, we, as a habit, uh, typically we teach through books of the Bible. So we take whatever books we sense God leading us to go through, anywhere from Genesis to Revelation, and we just spend time looking at every verse, every chapter, and then ultimately trying to connect that with the larger uh, uh, arc of the biblical narrative, and we do that often. That's kind of a regular diet. There are moments, though, that we will kind of punctuate that regular diet with some special moments, special meals, if you would, that are built upon, obviously, scriptural themes or concepts or ideas or ideologies, and that is exactly what we're going to be doing right now. And actually, we just finished a series, kind of a smaller series, looking at the life of Jesus, climaxing in the death of Jesus on Good Friday, and then ultimately the resurrection of Jesus last Sunday, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Um, So kind of in line with that, somewhat fitting that we're going to now kind of move on to begin to look at the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's important to note that as we kind of jump into this, uh, the personal Holy Spirit is not just an it. It's not we're we're not studying a, a, a force, or um, if you're kind of a fan of Star Wars, oftentimes you, some people are going to kind of have these misconceptions that the Holy Spirit is kind of like the, uh, the good force, kind of like uh, your midichlorian count is really high, and there are some Christians that are like extra high in midichlorian count, and they have extra special abilities. They're kind of like Jedi Knights. Um, uh, others, not so much. Um, Others are not aware of the Holy Spirit at all. But the reality is that's not at all what the Holy Spirit is. He's not just simply a force. He's, he's a person. And that's what we'll begin to really kind of look at and understand. Um, in fact, he's a valuable person. Many of us may not really be too aware as to who the Holy Spirit is. And part of the reason for that, I think, is there is sort of a rift, if you would, in much of modern evangelicalism over the person of the Holy Spirit. Not intentionally so, not purposefully so, but I think it is so. Because what typically happens when you think of the subject or the person of the Holy Spirit, typically one of two extremes, um, polarized views, comes to mind. One on the one extreme is you think of the Holy Spirit, you think of going crazy, people swinging from chandeliers, someone whipping out you know, a tambourine or banners and doing weird dances on the stage, or people with long mullets doing weird stuff. Or the flip side of that are you have a sense where churches are kind of Bible churches, they're not into that spiritual stuff, or they're not into the Holy Spirit. They don't look for healings. They don't pray to the Holy Spirit. They stay away from it because it's all about the Bible. And unfortunately, I think what ends up happening is there's sort of this unnecessary rift that you have churches over here that are Bible-teaching churches and churches over here that are all about the Holy Spirit. Sometimes when they're all about the Holy Spirit, don't spend a lot of time focusing on Scripture or digging into the Scriptures to what Scripture has to say the ones over here that are all about digging in the scripture don't spend a lot of time really asking, how does the Holy Spirit want to really move in this moment? Are there people that God wants to heal? Are there ways in which the Holy Spirit wants to minister? And so what I want to suggest to all of us is to try to approach this series with an open heart and open mind as to who God is and allow God to speak to you uh, as to who he is. Um, We say this all the time, especially when it comes to Jesus, is that if we approach the Bible with prefabricated ideas as to who Jesus is, and then we read the scriptures through this lens that we bring to it, then really what we're getting is not a biblical Jesus, but a self-made Jesus. In other words, it's a Jesus that we've created. The problem with that Jesus is that Jesus cannot heal you. He cannot help you. He cannot save you because you made him. He doesn't exist, in other words. And so it's important for us, especially when we look at the life of Jesus, to let the Bible inform our understanding, inform our thinking, our minds, as to who he is. And the same, I would say, is true of the Holy Spirit. Let's allow God to inform our understanding, inform our thinking as to who the Holy Spirit is, and then begin to uh, deal with that. And if that means that we need to shift and uh, rethink or uh, reshape some of the ways in which we've approached the person of the Holy Spirit and maybe even mean to repent from 
false notions, false ideas that we've had about the Holy Spirit and to uh, accept and to embrace new ones, then that's just simply called being a follower of Jesus. It's just simply called following God, letting God take you the way that God wants to take you. So in other words, it's an adventure. It's a journey to let God shape our mind, shape our understanding into ways that is befitting of God, as opposed to just simply us shaping a God into our own likeness and our own image. So with that, I want to really begin to jump in and take a look at the two passages that I told you guys to have your finger at. So Romans chapter 8 is one, and then Genesis chapter 1, we'll get to that in just a second. But I want to, first of all, jump in, beginning to read Romans chapter 8. This is a great passage. In fact, it's kind of a long passage. I'm just going to read through it first and foremost. I might make a couple comments as I go through, um, but then I'll summarize some of the things. So just, just beware as we go into this. This is sort of an introduction into kind of what we're going to be taking a look at. So as we move into the series on the Holy Spirit, we'll spend about 12 weeks, maybe give or take a few uh, more based upon uh, kind of how we sense God leading. Um, But more or less around 12 weeks, we'll be taking a look at spending our times on Sunday mornings understanding the person of the Holy Spirit. So with that being said, I'm going to kind of lead into this by looking at Romans chapter 8 and see what Paul has to say. This whole passage is really all about life in the Spirit. So listen to what Paul has to say. I'm actually reading this to you guys out of the New Living Translation. So if you don't have that translation, you can follow along up, uh, up on the screen. If you already have it, then good job. Um, Romans chapter 8, I typically read from the ESV, so this is a little bit of a different translation that uh, I typically read from. But it's a really uh, easy to follow, follow along type of a uh, version. So just listen to it. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 16. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. Because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies that we sinners have. And in the body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Next slide. Uh, he goes on to say, in verse 4, he says, He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So in pause, just think about this. Um, what Paul is basically saying is that there are two basic frameworks of which we live our lives. Um, really, if you think of it this way, we are either dominated or our minds are controlled by what Paul says are the things of the Spirit. We'll try to unpack that in a moment, kind of fill that out to help you understand and elaborate what that means in a second. Or our minds are dominated or controlled by the things of the flesh. This, in short, is really, um, if you would kind of think of it this way, it's the default mode of your heart. So every one of us, we have a default mode of our heart that will take us someplace. So if you think about it this way, Every one of us in this room right now, we are on a path. We have a trajectory that our life is following. You may not conscientiously be following that particular trajectory because it's the default mode of your heart. It's just the default direction which you're going. So if you think of it this way, another analogy would be if you're driving down the road and you've got a car that is really badly out of alignment, right? So if you take your hands off of the wheel, the natural default mode of that car that is horribly out of alignment is to drift. You guys follow along, along so far? So in order to make certain that that car does not drift off the road, you have to enact another power that's greater than the power of the drift to recorrect it. You guys following along? So you put your hands on the wheel, and that, the power that comes from your hands on that wheel overrides the power that's at work in that car that keeps it out of alignment, that forces it into drift, okay? So it's the same true, the same is true with our hearts. As human beings, we have a natural drift or bent away from God and towards a nature or actions that lead to death and brokenness. If you don't believe me, just look at almost any relationship you've ever been in. Has it ever fractured? Has it ever been broken? Have you ever stepped on each other's toes? Have you ever done something that has offended someone? And in your mind, you're like, you know you're right. And you're trying to justify yourself. That is part of that drift. You and I are all prone towards somehow being inward bent on ourselves. We call it selfishness. 
We have this natural bent in upon ourselves whereby we always want to be right. We want to be king. And as long as everybody in our life is lined up with our kingship, we call that path peaceful. You guys follow along? But if somebody crosses us, if somebody does something against the way that we want things to be lined up, then we get frustrated and we oftentimes counterattack in ways that are oftentimes painful or hurtful or destructive. That is the drift beginning to happen within your heart. And it brings brokenness in our lives. So if you live your life on that trajectory, and you know, a lot of you guys are kind of young, but let's just say you get into the older ages of your life, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, however old, at some point, if there's nothing that recorrects that drift, then what you will leave behind your life is this ongoing, constant, perennial wake of brokenness. The Bible says that if nothing is intervening in your life prior to the point of death, then that drift will go on into an eternal drift. Jesus describes it as hell, destruction. So this is why we need something greater than the natural propensity towards drift to override the brokenness of our heart. And that's what Paul says. The power that overrides that drift is the Holy Spirit. God does something in our hearts, and he begins to redirect our lives, re-guide us towards paths of life. This is what he says. Again, verse 5. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. For the next few weeks, we'll take a look at what are the things that please the Spirit for right now. Just think about the fact that there are things that please God, there are things that don't please God, there are things that lead to life, there are things that lead to death. So this is kind of an ongoing way in which Paul is kind of juxtaposing life in the Holy Spirit, whatever that is, with life in the flesh, which I think most of us kind of get. So verse 6, he says, So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile toward God. It never did obey God's law, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. He's talking to those that are in Christ, or in other words, Christians, those that are following Jesus, God's path, those that have repented, those that have turned to Christ. Uh, Verse 9, he says, but you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Verse 10, he says, and Christ lives within you even so, or even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. So again, uh, last week we were reminded of this in a very poignant way. Obviously, Jesus rose again from the dead. And he's saying that, that the Holy Spirit who lives in us, in the next slide, is the same, verse 11, is the same spirit that actually raised Jesus from the dead. So in the same way, if you think of it this way, why does the hope of resurrection get Christians really excited? Because what happened to Jesus is also what will happen to everyone who follows Jesus. So if you think of it this way, it's one of the reasons why Paul uses this little phrase throughout the entire New Testament. He says, in Christ, those that are in Christ. What does it mean to be in Messiah, in Christ? Uh, We've said this a lot before in the past, but the word Christ or Messiah or King, those are all synonymous terms. And what does it mean to be in Christ or Jesus the King? It means to let that King rule and reign over our lives. And it means that whatever happens with that King also happens with that King's subjects. So in other words, if you are in Christ, in that King, that should you suffer And you will suffer. We all have suffering to some degree, various shades in our lives. Even though that suffering may lead to death, there's hope beyond that. Because even though death may be your greatest enemy, there's resurrection. How do we know that? Because Jesus rose again from the dead. And if you're in Christ, that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead also is in you. That's great hope. Next slide. He goes on to say, In closing this little section, verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received the Spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's Spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his Spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. 
So what does all this mean? So in short, in summary, a kind of next slide, kind of throw out a couple ways, a summary of what we all looked at. In other words, the point I want to make is this, is that the Holy Spirit is very practical. When we talk about the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is not just simply this, this weird emotion-creating force uh, that oftentimes gets publicized in certain segments of Christianity, or the Holy Spirit is not this weird, create, uh, you know, mysterious force that should be avoided in Bible-type focused churches. Really, the whole angle, the whole idea of the Holy Spirit is God at work in us, or to put it the way one guy put it, and I'll get back to this in a second, Gordon uh, Fee, uh, pastor, uh, theologian, says that he is God's empowering presence, and I'll come to that in a second. But first of all, just take a look at some of the ways or giving sort of a synopsis of some of those Romans chapter 8 passages. One, we see that the Holy Spirit frees you from the power of sin that leads to death. That's Romans chapter 8, verse 2. So he frees you, which means or implies that at one point we were under the control of that drift. So in other words, no matter how much you intended in your heart to not drift, you could not, you had not the power to overdrive or override that drift. Some of you might feel that way right now. You look at your life and you feel as if you are always careening off the path into some form of destruction. You are either hurting or wounding yourself by your own actions or you are hurting other people by your own actions. And you're like, who shall deliver me from this drift? The good news is the Holy Spirit does. That's what Paul's saying. So some of us are like, well, I'm not convinced. I still think I can just do it myself. Well, what happens is Paul says, even the best intentions don't rescue us, don't save us. But the Holy Spirit frees us from the power of sin that leads to death. It's a power that we have no control over. He goes on to say, the next one is that the Holy Spirit helps you to think about things that please God. So in other words, what our thoughts are going on in our minds, what we meditate upon, what we think about, what we stew over what we ponder. These are all the things that shape us. So if you think about it this way, what you spend the majority of your time throughout the day thinking about actually shapes you. It, it awakens desires and cravings and longings. One of the reasons why. So if you think about it, people say, for example, uh, in terms of very committed or very broken types of relationships where they're always got pornography on their mind. They're very defiling. But why is that sometimes so destructive? Because it has this force, this power to constantly hijack your thinking to where you cannot stop thinking about it. So even though you may not be sitting in front of a computer screen or on your iPhone looking at porn, you're still thinking of those images. So even if you go downtown, go get something to eat, and you look at somebody, you cannot look at them without seeing them as nothing more than an object. It's a power that's controlling you. In other words, you're not free. You need to be set free. How to get set free? Well, the Holy Spirit actually washes our thinking, our mind, gives us a new heart, and our mind begins to think on new things, things that actually please God, things that lead to life. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit also leads you to life and peace. So stands the reason that if God deals with the things that are prone towards drift, in other words, Biblical term for that is sin. If God fixes that or fixes the alignment in your car, at least gives you the power to overcome that alignment issue, then that also stands a reason that will lead you to, rather than careening off the side of the road constantly in your life, it will lead you to a life of joyride. Right? Joyride. Everything's awesome. You get to go from point A to point B, get to enjoy yourself rather than constantly driving off the road and trashing your car. You guys following the analogy? All right, y'all, y'all tracking? Good. Next, it also gives you life, 8.10. Also goes on to say is that the Holy Spirit reveals to you that you are God's child. So verse 14 says, you know what this means is that those of us in this world that have ever asked the question, what am I here for? Who do I belong to? What are and who are my people who accepts me? All right, that's the one question that we've been asking ever since kindergarten, right? Like, like who will accept me? And why will they accept me? Well, they'll accept me if I wear really cool clothes. And so therefore, you go out and you buy clothes. Some of us, it's not just that we have a buying clothes issue. It's that really underneath that we, when we buy new clothes, are not simply buying new clothes. We are buying a new identity because at the end of the day, we think that buying a new identity is going to buy us a place of belonging. It doesn't. Really, the, the, the drive that, that, that drives us, that pushes us, motivates us, 
is we want a place of belonging. And what Paul says is that the Holy Spirit actually gives you a place of belonging. You belong to God. You're his child. The thing is, is that if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that sometimes our hearts are convincing of that kind of ebb and flow. I mean, there are moments where we're like, yes, I know I belong to Jesus. I belong to God. God loves me. I'm his child. And then there's other times where you feel really far and distant from God, right? Has anybody ever had that experience? Both of you. Okay, cool. Um, Glad we're all tracking here. The point of the matter is, is that we all experience that. But what the Holy Spirit also does is he affirms to us that we're God's children. So that means that there's going to be times when you're not sure of that, but the Holy Spirit affirms to us that we actually belong to God. This is really good. This is really hopeful because some of you, it's not that you don't have salvation or a place of belonging. It's that you don't have an affirmation that you have a place of belonging. In other words, you're always wondering, I'm not really sure what my place is with God. I'm not really sure if God loves me. I'm not really sure if God cares about me or if God really loves me. That's the real issue. But the Holy Spirit, Paul says, actually reaffirms to us that we have a place of belonging, that we have a place with God. So in short, the Holy Spirit is radically practical to our Christianity. So no matter what types of thinking that you've had about the Holy Spirit, in your past, like I said earlier, I, I would love for you to approach this whole uh, series with kind of a renewed mind, a mindset that's able to just say, let's, let's start from scratch, let's try to understand who the Holy Spirit is at face value as he reveals himself in God's word, and let's let God begin to change us. Because I truly believe that if you allow God to reawaken your understanding and to rescribe, if you would, thoughts in your heart and your mind about who God is revealed through the Holy Spirit, it could actually change your life for the better. Because if all this stuff is true, which if you're a follower of Jesus, it is, this is what we believe is true, then there's nothing but good, hopeful life forward in terms of allowing our hearts and our minds embrace who God reveals himself to be through the person of the Holy Spirit. You guys following along so far? So what I'm going to do in short, what we'll be taking a look at over the next 12 or so weeks is, one, we'll be taking a look at who the Holy Spirit is. Secondly, we'll be taking a look at what the Holy Spirit does. So in other words, one, the person of the Holy Spirit, and then secondly, we'll take a look at the work of the Holy Spirit, some of the ways in which the Holy Spirit works. As I already referenced earlier, a guy named Gordon Fee describes the Holy Spirit as God's empowering presence. Uh, Another way to think of it is God's person. The Holy Spirit is God's person. He's God's power, and he's God's presence, all of these things. He's not just a force. He is actually a person that wants to have relationship with us. One other final thing before I jump into this, um, if I were to ask you kind of a hypothetical question, and the question was, what would you rather have right now? Would you rather have Jesus come manifest within this room and sit down and just begin to teach us, or would you rather have the Holy Spirit, who's already here, just continue doing what the Holy Spirit wants to do? A lot of us would kind of be like, well, I'd rather have Jesus. Well, Jesus actually said, to his disciples, he says, look, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I go away, then you will receive the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit then will teach you all things. He will empower you to do all things. So according to Jesus, actually what he says is better for his followers, the disciples, that the Holy Spirit were to come instead of his own physical, tangible presence. That may come as a shock to some of us, because some of us are like, well, wait a minute, I, wouldn't it be awesome to just have Jesus? Yes, it would be amazing to have Jesus, of course. One of these days, Jesus will come back. But apparently, what that means is that you and I have access to God in a way that's greater than if Jesus were to be present on planet Earth right now. Some of us don't believe that. Some of us are like, yeah, whatever. I'm not sure if I believe that. That seems far-fetched. But that's what Jesus said. So that's what I hope as we begin to dig into this and really begin to open our hearts and our minds and our understandings to who God is, that God will begin to reshape and wash away and cleanse some of the false notions that we've had about who the Holy Spirit is. So with that, I want to begin to understand a little bit about kind of the arc of who the Holy Spirit is throughout the Scripture. So begin to kind of jump into this. What I want to do is I'm going to, for, I'll just let you know, I'm going to be all over the place, all right? So I'm going to kind of try to follow through the narrative of the Scripture, of the Bible, who the Holy Spirit is, and then we'll kind of climax in the person of Jesus and what Jesus has to say about the Holy Spirit. So there's a lot of angles in which we can take this. But 
Typically, a lot of times, you know, if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that my messages oftentimes are pretty organized and orderly. And I'm just going to be jumping all over the place. I'm just going to let you know that up front. I've got all the passages on there. Really, we're just going to be looking at a handful of scriptures, and I'll be making some comments on those scriptures, and that's about it. That's all we'll really be doing. So um, I want to begin to take a look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. So if you guys already have your fingers there, uh, that's great. If you have no idea where that is at, it's uh, page 1. Um, Genesis <laughs> chapter 1, verse 1. Starts off by saying this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. It's this latter phrase I really want to emphasize. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the image in kind of the beginning of all things is God created all things. But the Holy Spirit is depicted as... Uh, basically flying or fluttering, if you would, kind of like a bird over the face of the deep. In fact, in one of the ancient translations, um, during the time in which Jesus was alive, they called these targums. Uh, the image that was basically translated into that particular uh, targum was a picture of the Holy Spirit like a dove flying over the face of the deep. So the image is that here's the Holy Spirit as God created all things, the heavens and the earth. The Holy Spirit is flying like a dove over the face of the deep, basically creating order and beauty and God's life over this earth. So the picture is God bringing life, bringing order, bringing organization, bringing beauty to this creation. That's the whole, the whole picture, the image of the Holy Spirit in this particular situation. The word Holy Spirit actually is uh, a word that basically comes from the word that describes the same idea as breath or wind or breeze. In the Hebrew, it's the uh, Hebrew word ruach. In the uh, Greek, in the New Testament, when it's referring to the Holy Spirit, it's uh, the word panuma. It's the idea of breath or wind or breathe. Um, in other places, uh, in other translations, actually uh, pronounced or, or translated as courage. So the idea is something that's invisible, but is made known or revealed by the results it creates. So that's kind of what, when you think about wind, I mean, the past few nights, it's been really windy. My wife was telling us this morning when she woke up, that, or last night, uh, she heard a table uh, crash outside in her backyard. It was frightening to her. And the fact of the matter is, it was the wind, this invisible force. You can't see it. You don't really know it's there unless something is in its way that it knocks it over. And it knocked it over, and it was frightening. But the point of the matter is, is this is the idea of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like this invisible force that makes beauty and reality and goodness. And this is the original picture of creation, we know the rest of the story. If you're familiar with the uh, story there in the Bible, God created all things. He creates Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve ultimately are in harmony and uh, relationship with God. And yet ultimately what happens is Adam and Eve turn away from God. And rather than in relationship and uh, beauty and kindness and goodness with God, they begin to fall away from God. They turn to themselves. They turn away from God. And as a result of turning away from God, they don't turn towards Greater life, greater love, greater acceptance, they turn towards greater darkness and greater death. And that's inevitably what ends up happening. But what God does is God comes in the scene. God comes back and by Genesis chapter 3, immediately after Adam and Eve fall. God comes back on the scene. He makes these promises that one day he's going to put this world in its broken state back to right. And the way he's going to do that, he's going to deal with the issue that has brought about its brokenness or its disharmony. It's called Sin. That's exactly what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, that God deals with that which causes disharmony. And if you're kind of wondering about your own life, like what's, what needs to happen in your own life to organize and bring order to some of those areas that are disorganized or dis, in disharmony and brokenness, is that God wants to deal with those issues that cause or create rebellion, those things that are not in order and recognition and love towards God's spirit, God's presence. And this is what we see God beginning to do in the book of Genesis. And then God begins to uh, set forth kind of a pattern or a plan to begin to make this broken world set back to right. And I want to turn next to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 44. So I want you to turn there real quick. And if uh, you have no idea where that's at, uh, no problem at all whatsoever using table contents. But Isaiah chapter 44. And in between uh, Genesis 1 and Isaiah 44, there's a lot of 
uh, verses as well as a lot of history. And in short, history kind of goes something like this. God basically was looking for one who would basically begin to bring forth uh, a repartnering with God. Rather than saying no to God and yes to self, they would say yes to God. And God found a man named Abraham. Abraham said yes to God. Abraham obeyed God and followed God all the way, even though it cost him or would have appeared to have cost him everything. God then began through Abraham to birth what we would call a nation or the nation of Israel. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had many sons. That would then later form what is known as the people of Israel. Now, this, the, the hope was, was that Israel would partner with God and that Israel would be in covenant with God. They would love God. They would obey God. They would do what God would say. And therefore, in being in harmony and relationship with God, therefore, they would then be life-giving agents upon the planet. They would be like a city set upon a hilltop so that when people wondered uh, outside of the relationship or covenant with God, what it would look like to be in relationship with Yahweh, in a partnership with life itself, they would just be able to look at Israel. The problem is that Israel, rather than partnering with God, loving God, being in covenant fidelity with God, Israel became just like every dark, death-creating pagan nation. Rather than pushing back darkness, the darkness overcame Israel. Rather than pushing back death by obeying God and living in life, Israel became part of the system death. As a result of that, Israel basically would go off in various forms of exile. Uh, The nation would be raided uh, throughout seasons and periods of their life, one of which they would be taken off into uh, exile down in Egypt, another which later they would be taken off into exile in Babylon. And during these times, there were all these rumblings going around in the hearts and the minds of these Jewish people. And the questions oftentimes would be like this, has God been unfaithful to Abraham? God promised Abraham he would never, ever forsake Israel, even though Israel has not been the best country to partner with. God said he would be faithful. Has God stopped being faithful? There would be these people that would show up on the scene. They would begin to speak. And these people that would show up on the scene and begin to speak, they were called prophets. One of the prophecies that came from a man by the name of Isaiah, chapter 44, goes something like this. He says, while Israel was in this place of exile, while they were feeling the weight of their own sin, feeling the weight of death, feeling the weight of darkness, feeling the weight of dryness, they were wondering, where's God? Will God ever come back and rescue and save and heal? And the psalmist, or the prophet, I should say, says this. He says, but hear now, O Jacob, servant Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Do not be afraid, O Jacob, my servant, whom I have chosen, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants that shall spring up the grass like willows by flowing streams. You gotta understand kind of a little bit of the context. Israel lived in part of the world that was very similar kind of geographically to where we live. Obviously, as Californians, we are in drought right now. And for many of us, like, we're not even really sure what that means, all right? We're like, oh, I think I'll take an extra long shower. We're in drought. Like, we don't, we don't really feel the weight of that. But if you lived in Israel and you didn't have access to this and drought happened, you're fearful. You think you're going to die. There's no hope. You are worried about the life of your children. You're worried about the life of your legacy, of your grandchildren. You're worried about the agedness of your grandma. You're in a place in a state of potential panic when there's not water, when there's no rain to be found. You're in the midst of drought, and you're wondering, where's God? When will God show up? When will God breathe life into our dry and arid state? And the promise of Isaiah is coming. The water's coming. The Holy Spirit, I will pour out my Holy Spirit upon you. And as in the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 and 2, when God breathed life over this world and brought beauty and substance and creativity to life, God will do a new thing. And just like in the past, God has not forsaken you, my people. And God will one day restore and keep good on his promise that he made to Abraham, and it will bring forth this 
torrents of living water upon their offspring and upon their descendants. Now, Israel held on to that. Like they were, they were looking forward to that promise that one day, God, when are you going to make good on this promise? So they were always holding this kind of tightly to their heart and wondering, when is this prophecy going to come to pass? When will God make good on this prophecy, this prophecy from Isaiah? Um, fast forward a few hundred years or so to the life of Joel, or you know, debatable as exactly how long the time frame this was. But during the time of Joel, Joel is another prophet, and he says something like this in Joel chapter 2, verse 8. He says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Again, the image of the Holy Spirit, the image of water, the image of life in the midst of dryness and deadness and brokenness. You guys following along? This is the promise that God is making to people that know nothing but brokenness. God says it's coming. And the, the prophecy in Isaiah basically is to Israel and their descendants. The prophecy in Joel, it says, this is to all peoples. In fact, the scope of God's promise begins to look way beyond just simply the ethnic group of Jewish people to all nations. That's what that means, is that God's promise is not going to be just to Israel, but to all peoples, all people group. John chapter 1, verse 32, turn it real quick. John chapter 1, verse 32, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, is the story of John the baptizer. And some of you are maybe familiar with this. Um, Again, we just kind of skipped uh, hundreds of years of history. We come to the time of the New Testament. Uh, We come to the season, this time, where there's a guy by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is kind of a really strange guy. Um, a lot of people see him as kind of a prophet. A lot of people don't really know what to make of John. His dad was uh, a guy that kind of worked for the Levitical priesthood. So if you're kind of familiar with it all with kind of first century uh, temple period, what you would find is uh, John's dad basically worked for the system. He worked for the temple, all right? Um, John, uh, shockingly, ironically, is like, I'm not going to work for the temple. I'm going to go outside of the temple. I'm going to do something different. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite people that really want to be the Israel of God. Because the question at that point was, who really belongs to God? Who really are the faithful ones to Yahweh? It was really the question. Like, like who really belongs to Yahweh? Is it the people that just simply bring their sacrifices to the temple? Is it those that give their money and their homage and their diligence to the temple? Or is it those that actually repent and love and cherish and honor and worship God? This is a really important question because some of us are still a little bit confused about that ourselves because some of us might think that you are okay with God just because you go to church every Sunday or you read your Bible often or you have a grandma that's an amazing Christian. But none of those things guarantee your relationship with God at all. They may be good for you. I mean, reading your Bible is awesome. It's definitely better than other alternatives that could be out there. It's a great book to read. But that doesn't guarantee in any way, shape, or form some form of fidelity between you and God. Just because you go to church. I mean, going to church is awesome. I think you should go to church. I think it's a thing that you should do on a regular habit type of a way. But don't let it become sort of a habit. Let it become something that you want to do because you like being a part of a community of people. But... The reality is just going to church does not in any way guarantee you that you have a right relationship or standing with God. And the people of Israel were dealing with the same thing during John's day. And so the question was, who are really the Israel of God? Who are really God's people? And John would say, the people that really belong to God are those that approach God humbly and are quick to repent from sin and turn towards God's kingdom. And the sign of that was they would be baptized. So in a few few weeks, I should say, we're going to be doing our own baptism where it's a way of stepping forth saying, I belong to God. I'm birthed into a new family. This is what John was doing. And so John would bring this kind of counter temple movement out into the region of the Jordan. People would go out there and they would uh, basically step forth and say, I'm following Yahweh. I'm turning my back on the system. I'm turning my back on that which is evil or broken or destructed or destroyed or that which kind of leads to drift. And I want to focus my heart on Yahweh. So John had this great movement going on. And so John one day is approached by Jesus. And he already knew Jesus because Jesus happened to be his cousin, ironically. So Jesus comes up, and John baptizes Jesus, and something shocking happens. John tells this story in the book of John. It's a little confusing 
First, John, the guy who wrote. John is actually a disciple. John, the guy who's in the story, is called John the Baptizer. So I know a lot of Johns, but follow along. So this is the story of John the Baptizer recounting this strange scenario that happened when Jesus was baptized. It says, on the last day of the feast, sorry, here we go, sorry. John testifies, says, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting on him, that's Jesus. And at first, I didn't know that he was the Messiah. But when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus. So I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So up at this point, Israel's looking for, wondering, when will God come and bring the fulfillment of these prophecies to Isaiah, from Jeremiah to Joel, this whole arc, narrative arc throughout the entire Old Testament. When will God bring to pass the sense of new life, and who will be the one to whom God will bring this new life to? John says, I saw this Jesus, upon him, the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And John says, it's this one that will then bring forth torrents of living water to all who come to him. In other words, it's John's way of basically saying, Jesus is the king, that if you turn to this king, he will reorder your life from a path of death and destruction and brokenness and aridness to a life that's truly being lived. He will correct the drift in your heart. He will do so by giving you a new heart. He will take those desires that actually lead you astray, that lead you into your own brokenness or lead you to bring about brokenness in the lives of other people. He will reform and change and transform your life because he is the one that will do this. So the last passage I want to read, and I'm done, is John chapter 7, verse 37. It says this, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. So what's going on here right here so far? Um, it says a reference to a feast. What feast is he talking about? Most scholars believe that this is what's called the Feast of Tabernacles. The Jews would basically, every year, and they still do it to this day, many of them, um, they would actually go out and they would set up a tent. Um, and they would basically spend a few days outside, underneath the stars, in the tent. So imagine the whole entire family pitching a tent, wherever it is that you are. In fact, a lot of times what they'll do today is they'll just go in their backyard. But back in that day, what they would do is they would basically find anywhere there was open space and just pitch a tent. So this was kind of hearkening back to a season or a period in time of the people of Israel's history when they did not have a homeland. In other words, they were living in the wilderness, and they were living off of the land. So imagine, so some of us might think, well, that's, that's not that big of a deal, but Israel at that time was probably between 1 million to 3 million people. So imagine, um, you know, a million little babies, uh, a lot of, you know, hundreds of thousands of elderly people, uh, aside from that, goats and sheep and livestock and cattle and all of these things. So imagine having to set up and break down your entire existence in these tents. But the hope was, was that one day God would take the people of Israel that are living in tents in the midst of a non-homeland, that God would bring them into a homeland and they would be brought home. And the hope was that one day God would do this. God would be faithful to bring them to a place where they would live. And so on the Feast of Tabernacles, this is probably what was happening in the city of Jerusalem, where it says Jesus was there on that great day. Uh, part of the history and part of the uh, tradition around that time was typically the high priest uh, would have a large bucket, large golden bucket. And uh, there was this kind of long uh, walkway from a pool called the Pool of Siloam that led all the way up a mountainside. Um, steps all the way up to the region of the temple. So if you're familiar at all with the geography of Israel, you know that Israel, Jerusalem itself, is actually on a mountain. So if you're familiar with kind of the temple mount, it's actually up on a very high mountain, one of the highest mountains in that entire area, and everything else is down from there. So um, this high priest would have had this bucket full of water that he filled up at this little pool of Siloam that's kind of down in the valley. Then he would begin to walk up these steps, and as he was walking up these steps, he would basically take water and pour it out. And each few steps he'd walk, he would pour out a little bit more water, a few more steps, pour out some more water, a few more steps, pour, more, pour out some more water until he got to the very top. He would then pour out the rest of this bucket of water. So if you imagine in your mind, um, you would have maybe tens of thousands of people um, following the high priest on his procession as the high priest would be pouring out water on these steps, starting from the pool of Siloam, going all the way up to the Temple Mount. And the image was this. One day God 
will revisit our people and in the same way that water's being poured out upon these steps, upon our dryness, upon our aridness, upon our brokenness, that God will come again and bring his living water, his Holy Spirit, and we will live again. That was the image. One other thing that's not necessarily mentioned at all in the text, it's kind of my speculation, is that some of the tradition has stated that during this time, during this procession, it was nothing but total silence. So imagine total silence, except for the priest splashing water down the steps. So if you are able to be close enough to hear what's going on, you could hear the water dripping down the steps as you watch all this. And it's, I like to imagine, it's in the midst of this total dead silence while the priest finally gets to the very top of the steps of the Temple Mount as he's pouring out the remainder of the bucket of water, symbolizing the hope that one day God would revisit his people with living water. Jesus cries, a loud voice. He said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers, living water. It's Jesus' statement to these hungry people saying, I am the one that has come to give you life. The question this begs us to ask is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? Because the reality is a lot of us, we live in a life, we live our lives in a world that has a lot to offer, a lot of features, a lot of, a lot of stuff we feed on. And we're really not thirsty. We're really not thirsty. I mean, we feel for the most part we can get by with what we have. But the question is, are, are you really alive? Are you living? Do you have all that Romans 8 we impact? Uh, do you have that as a part of your life Or are you in a constant perennial state of drift? And every time you drift, or every time you veer, you end up wounding or hurting or breaking yourself or wounding, hurting, and breaking someone else. Jesus invites us. He says, come to me. I will give you the Holy Spirit. That's why he finishes. He says, now this he said about the Spirit. The fact is, is that Jesus has come to give his presence, God's empowering presence to live inside of us, to affirm that we have a place of belonging, to give us life, to give us peace, to give us power. You realize that belonging, life, peace are all the things that you and I order our lives to get, even if God's not part of that equation. Do you, do you understand that? How's it working? Because the fact of the matter is that many of us, we just turn to alternatives. And they may offer fixes temporarily. They may offer some solutions momentarily. But the fact of the matter is, is that at the end, we end up paying far more than we ever get back. We end up feeling defiled. We end up feeling arid and broken and dry and destroyed and ruined. And what Jesus offers us is life. I want to invite you to come to that table. One of the things that sometimes people object to this is they hear phrases like, well, wait a minute, I thought when I believed, I thought when I became a Christian, the Holy Spirit came and took up residence in me. So if that's the case, if, if, if I have the Holy Spirit already in me, is it possible to have more of the Holy Spirit? Like, how is that possible? If God gave himself to me, did God just give me 80% of himself and then now for the rest of my Christian life, I gotta somehow earn that rest of that 20%? And I would suggest that if you've ever thought through logically like that, that the, the problem with that is, is it's treating the Holy Spirit more like a doctrine or an idea rather than a person. Whereas a person in a personal relationship, you may have that person entirely, but you're learning over a length of time what makes that person tick. I'll give you an example. My wife and I, we met when we were around 16 years old. We started dating around when we were like 19 years old, so something like that. And we kind of made a commitment to each other. When we started getting a little bit serious, our commitment to each other was that we were not going to kiss until we got engaged. So we kind of had this cordial commitment arrangement with each other that I'm not going to kiss you, you're not going to kiss me until we are official, going to be officially be giving ourselves to one another in marriage towards one another. And so um, the reason for that was twofold. One, we didn't want to in any way, shape, or form defile the relationship by having sex or doing things that we shouldn't be doing that would end up bringing brokenness. And the other thing, part of back of my mind was like, I don't want to be making out with another dude's wife. So we made this commitment. 
And then finally, when we got engaged, we were in uh, Corona de Mar, and we looked at each other. We're like, you know what this means? We're like, yeah, of course. I kissed my wife. It was awesome. But you see, here's the thing. That ended up working its way into our marriage. And the day that I said I do, the day that she said I do, we became each other's. 100%. It wasn't like 80% and 20% not trying to figure that out. We 100% legally became fully devoted, committed to one another. But the reality is we're going on 25 years of marriage. I'm still learning about my wife. She's still learning about me. We are learning to love and work and show kindness and devotion. There are still things that I'm discovering about my wife today that I am savoring and celebrating more than I've ever had before in our walk, in our relationship. And the same is true, I would say, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit became fully yours the moment you gave your life to Jesus. Fully yours. He, he lives entirely in you, but it's all about this relationship that you are now fostering and building. And every relationship involves being vulnerable, giving yourself entirely to that person. So another way to think about it, it's not just so much that we are getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's where kind of language breaks down. But in a sense, it's the Holy Spirit is getting more of you. He's learning, or he already knows who you are, I should say. You are learning to give yourself entirely to him, learning to be vulnerable to him, learning to give yourself to him. So we're going to respond to the Holy Spirit now as he reveals to us God, as he shows us the heart of the Father through Jesus. So we're going to sing. Why don't we all stand? What I want to do as we close, I'm going to do something that a little bit different, but here's the way I want to do this. Why don't we all stand? I'll stand. Here we go. Good job. We're going to respond. And uh, the way I want to do this is I pose the question is, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? If you're thirsty... I'm going to pray, and as I'm praying, I'm going to ask you to put out your hands like this, to raise them. Raise them high, raise them low, you can put them on each side, it doesn't matter. But the posture, the idea behind the posture is a way of basically saying, I come to God with my hands open. I'm not bringing something to God and have my hands open in a receiving posture. See, posture is kind of an interesting thing because posture can tell us a lot about people, right? I mean, you can be engaged in a conversation with someone and someone's standing, dudes like to stand like this often. And this is kind of like a posture that says, I'm impregnable. Nothing's getting through this guy. Like, I'm going to stand right here. Like, you're standing kind of with this, uh, this, this sense where nothing is getting through to your vulnerable parts. Standing like this is a way of saying everything's getting through to this vulnerable part. It's a posture. It's not magic. It's a posture. It's a posture that just says, God, I I want you. If you're here, you're not thirsty. If you're not a Christian, if you think this is creepy, that's fine. You don't got to do it. It's fine. But if you're here this morning and you're thirsty, you want a drink, you want what God has, I want to invite you to just lift up your hands. Lift your hands up, out to him, and let's just sing to him, okay? We have communion in the back. It's a way of reminding us the price that Jesus paid for us to give us life. It was a broken body, poured out blood. So I'm going to pray. Let's sing. Let's respond. Let's partake of communion together. Let's be open, transparent, vulnerable to God, okay? God, thank you that we can sing. Thank you that we can respond. Thank you that we can open ourselves up to you and not be fearful because you are a God that doesn't crush us when we reveal ourselves to you. God, our secrets do not shock you. Our secrets are already fully known to you. And yet you still, in spite of how dark, broken they are, God, you still say come. So we want to come to you, God, thirsty. We want to drink.